We are uh, studying together our church's doctrinal statement, which is the London Baptist Confession of Faith. And we are dealing now with chapter 22. And chapter 22 deals with the subject of religious worship and the Sabbath day. And so we've been dealing with uh, the first paragraph, which talks about the regulative principle of worship. And this phrase, the regulative principle of worship, simply is a statement that worship, like every other area of life, is regulated by God. And the question arises, by what principle or principles does God regulate his worship? And the answer, of course, is that he regulates his worship by the scriptures. And so we see in this first paragraph a statement that the duty to worship is incumbent upon all people and is uh, revealed by nature when it says uh, in chapter 22 in paragraph 1 on page 31, the light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and doeth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul, with all the might. So every person on the face of the, of the earth who ever has lived uh, in whatever time period or geography or ethnic group has known there is a God. Nature reveals it. Conscience reveals it. Natural revelation of conscience and creation tells every man there is a God. And so it tells us certain things about this God, that he has lordship and sovereignty. He's just and good and does good to all. And therefore, he's to be held in awe. And he is to be served and loved and worshipped, etc. And he is to be loved and worshipped and served with every fiber of our being. And this is something that every man knows. So wherever we go in culture, history, time, geography, what do we see people doing? Engaging in religious activity, right? Worshipping God. Now, it's true that their concepts of God are often perverted and their forms of worship are often corrupt. But nevertheless, the truth of our confession is borne out just by uh, a study of, of human culture throughout all history, time, and geography, in that we see people having this sense that there's a God and we need to worship a God. And, uh, <clears throat> and because man is fallen and is sinful, uh, his worship of God, of course, has been badly perverted. And so the second half of this paragraph then tells us how this worship of God is to be regulated and how it's to be directed. Now, it goes on to say, but, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or in any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. So this paragraph then addresses how God is to be worshiped and we discover how God is to be worshipped uh, in the scriptures. And nothing else and no one else is a safe guide as to how God is to be worshipped other than looking in the Bible and seeing what the Bible has to say about how God is to be worshipped. Now, the Bible uh, is, of course, God's word. And in his word, he says to us 
here's how I want to be worshipped. And we would expect that since worship is for God and that it's offered to God, that we would look to God to tell us how to do this thing, which is uh, for him and directed at him when we uh, engage in the activity. Well, um, we have talked about the principle that our confession of faith enunciates and it is the principle that says nothing is acceptable to God in worship unless it's specifically authorized by him. Now, there are many people who think that uh, anything is acceptable in worship to God unless it's forbidden. And so they would say, uh, yeah, God commands us to read the Bible and to pray and to sing. Uh, but he hasn't said that we can't uh, have candles and we can't do this and we can't do that. And since he hasn't forbidden it, we can, we can permit it. And so they introduce all kinds of things into the worship of God that are not authorized by the scriptures, but also are not forbidden by them. And so we have, uh, for some, the attitude is we have to do what God commands us and we can do anything else in addition to that that he does not forbid us. And that's called the inclusive regulative principle of worship. Our confession sets forth what's called the exclusive principle, regulative principle of worship, which simply says, if God hasn't specifically authorized it, we must not do it. And so God says to us, um, you know, uh, specifically that he wants us to preach and he wants us to pray and he wants us to sing and he wants us to read the scripture. He wants us to give. Um, he wants us to celebrate the Lord's Supper. He wants us to engage in the ordinance of baptism. And, and thus far, his instruction goes and, and, and there it stops. And so may we then uh, go beyond that and introduce things into worship that he has not specifically said that he wants. And we have asserted and our confession asserts that the answer to that question is no. Uh, the confession sets forth and the Bible sets forth the principle of worship that nothing is acceptable to God as worship unless it's specifically authorized by him. And we've been setting forth four reasons why we believe that's the case from the word of God. And the first two reasons we have looked at previously, we have seen the first reason is that it is the prerogative of God alone to determine the terms upon which sinners may approach him in worship. And so since worship is for God, God alone determines how he is to be approached in worship. And we would expect that if sinners were consulted in the matter, that they would wind up perverting worship simply because they're fallen and their minds are to some degree darkened by sin with the result that they would start to worship God according to their own imaginations. We looked at Genesis 4, 1 through 5, the story of Cain and Abel, how that Abel's sacrifice was acceptable to God, Cain's sacrifice was not. And in fact, God said of his sacrifice that he did not respect it, and he called it sin. And so we see that God had instructed Adam and Eve to offer animal sacrifices when he clothed them with coats of skins after the fall, Abel 
uh, followed that uh, line of instruction in that he brought the firstlings of the herd of his flock. And uh, Cain, of course, brought the offering of the grain of the field. Uh, we then looked at Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, which is the second commandment. And in this commandment, God says that we're not to create any graven images of God or the representations of God, any physical representations of God, and we're not to bow down ourselves to them and to worship them. And so we saw that not only does the second commandment forbid the making of the likeness of God and then worshiping it, it also stipulates that God is the one who decides how he is to be worshiped and what worship is acceptable to him. So in setting forth the second commandment, God is saying, I'm the one who regulates how I am to be worshiped. And by the way, I don't want to be worshiped in this specific way, but I'm also setting forth the principle that I'm the one who sets down the guidelines as to how that worship is to be done. And so it's very arrogant to think that we would be the ones to determine how God is to be worshiped when worship is for God. So we then looked at Deuteronomy 12, verses 29 through 32, in which God said, uh, when you worship me, don't add anything to what I tell you and don't take anything away from what I tell you. Do all I tell you, but only that which I tell you. And of course, he specifically says that in verse 32, Deuteronomy 12. So when Paul was writing to Timothy in the New Testament in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, he says, Timothy, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you shortly. But if I don't get there, I want you to know how you're supposed to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. So he told Timothy, there's a way in which you ought to behave in the house of God. And of course, he was setting forth that uh, here's the prayers that are to be offered. Um, you know, the men are to be praying and the men are to be teaching and the women are to be silent. And here's what deacons are supposed to be like. And here's what elders are supposed to be like. And, um, and here's how you're to conduct yourself in God's worship. And so he's giving him all these instructions. And he's saying, look, you can't just have a free for all in the church. You can't just run it any way you please. Uh, there's a way in which you ought to behave in the house of the living God. And so he reminds him, this is God's house. Now, when I go to your house, I would expect to abide by your rules. If I come in your house and you say, take off your shoes, I'd take off my shoes. If you said, you can sit here, but you can't sit over there, I would sit where I was instructed, your house, your rules, I conform to that. Well, this is God's house. And so we come and we conduct ourselves in his house the way he calls upon us to do. And when I say it's his house, I'm not talking about the physical building. I'm talking about the church as it gathers. The body of God's people, we're all living stones, built up a spiritual house. And as we gather uh, in the context in which we form a church with the living stones, namely the believers gathered in his name, um, then uh, we have to ask ourselves, this is God's house. What are his house rules? How does he want us to conduct ourselves in his presence? So <clears throat> we then having considered together that it is the prerogative of God alone to determine the terms upon which sinners may approach him and worship. Then last Lord's Day, we considered together that the introduction of extra biblical practices into worship 
inevitably winds up nullifying and replacing God's appointed worship. And so whenever you have God's worship, which is set forth in the word of God, and then men add their own ideas to that, it's not like they, they, they go on in parallel. Men's ideas always swallow up and overwhelm and wind up completely removing, ultimately, God's form of worship. And so um, we looked at Matthew 5, uh, verses 3 and verses 8 through 9, where Paul told the Pharisees, strike that, where Jesus told the Pharisees, um, you know, by your traditions, you make uh, the word of God of none effect. And he says, in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And so what happens is the doctrines of God were replaced with the commandments of men when men's ideas were allowed to be brought in alongside and parallel to God's ideas about how worship and service to God ought to be conducted. And then we looked at 2 Kings 16, verses 10 through 18, in which the king there saw the form and pattern of the altar that was used in Damascus, and he had that imported down to Jerusalem, and it took the place of the brazen altar, and he wound up altering all the forms of God's worship uh, as he brought in the ideas of, of man's worship to, um, to the uh, uh, Old Testament temple. So that leads us then today to our new material, um, and, and, uh, and that is our, our third point. And, and let me just make one final comment. Um, <clears throat> When you have godly spiritual worship, only godly spiritual people can really enter into that worship, participate in that worship, and really understand that worship and, and get value out of it. And when people come to New Testament Christian worship, it all seems very boring and it all seems very irrelevant to them uh, because all they have is the flesh and we worship God in spirit that is, in our inner man, and in truth, that is, according to the principles of God's word. And um, if you're spiritually dead and you're at enmity against the truth, there's not much there for you. And, of course, that's the reason why the children of Israel always wanted to build the golden calves, etc., because they need something physical for the flesh. And so in churches today, you see a lot of things introduced so that uh, unsaved, unspiritual people can feel like they're worshiping God uh, in a way that is relevant to them. And time and again, I've heard people say to me, well, I go here or go there because I really like the worship. Well, you know what? It doesn't matter if you like the worship. What matters is does God like the worship? And if God doesn't like the worship, then it doesn't matter if you get all tingly over it. Um, he says it's vain. So what's important then is that we recognize that when we engage in New Testament worship, we are going to be people who um, can only um, enter into that worship if we are truly saved uh, because there's nothing here for the flesh. And so those who are in the flesh, the worship will seem very empty to them. All right, well, that concluded our study from last time. Now, today we want to consider a third principle which would indicate to us the legitimacy of what our confession asserts. And that is nothing is acceptable to God 
in worship unless he has specifically authorized it. The third principle is this. The wisdom of Christ and the sufficiency of Scripture are called into question when we add elements to worship not ordained by them. The wisdom of Christ and the sufficiency of Scripture are called into question by adding elements to worship not ordained by them. Now, one of the doctrines that we believe is that the Bible contains everything necessary for the Christian life and that it is sufficient and that Christ had sufficient wisdom to be able to leave adequate instructions for the operation and function of his church and his people in their life before him and in their walk with him. And the Bible makes it very clear to us that the scriptures are sufficient to thoroughly furnish us for every good work And therefore, we do not need to bring in alongside or add to the word of God man's ideas in order to make up for its supposed inadequacy. All right. Let's turn in our Bibles, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. The book of 2 Timothy chapter 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we have this glorious statement of the inspiration of Scripture, the usefulness of Scripture, and the sufficiency of Scripture. Notice 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse um, 15 through 17. Paul says, speaking to Timothy, and that from a child thou hast known the holy Scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. How do people become saved? How do they exercise faith in Christ Jesus? Answer through instruction in the Scriptures. When is it too early to start teaching children the Scriptures? It's never too early. As soon as they're born, they need to be taught the Word of God. Okay? All right. Yeah. We, we read, read the Bible to our kids while they were still in the womb, right? Amen. Yeah. Okay. Verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's where it came from. Here's what it's useful for. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now here it's, here's its sufficiency that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now, what Paul is saying here is that the Scripture thoroughly furnishes us for every good work. Which means that there's no good work that we have to do for which the Scripture does not supply complete, total, um, and, and entirely adequate revelation and instruction. Now, the question arises, 
Is the worship of God a good work? Answer, yes. If it's a good work, then may we not say on the basis of this passage that the scripture thoroughly furnishes us for that good work? And the answer is once again, yes. Now, if the scripture thoroughly furnishes us for the good work of worship, then we certainly don't need to add anything to the instruction of Scripture with reference to the accomplishment of that work. And what this principle that's established in verse 17 does is it says to us that we look exclusively to the Word of God for our instruction because it contains everything that we need to do the work of God. And part of that work, of course, is worship, all right? So nothing's left out. So therefore, we don't need to bring human inventions in alongside and add them to it. So therefore, um, Scripture thoroughly furnishes us for the work of worship, and we don't need to look outside the Scripture in order to find additional elements of worship, uh, which we can then bring into um, the, uh, the, the worship of God. And of course, last time we looked at 2 Kings 16, 10 through 18, in which we saw uh, the king of Israel doing that. He went to the other religions outside and he brought in their altar and their forms of worship as though uh, the Old Testament hadn't provided enough instruction about how God was to be worshiped. And so that's what we see uh, the church doing today. It looks at the Bible. It says, ah, you know, prayer and Scripture reading and singing and preaching, you know, let's see, what's the world got to offer? And so they start looking at the Hollywood entertainment and they start looking at all the things that uh, people do on the stage and they bring that right into the church, okay? We don't need to look to the world for inspiration as to how to engage in the worship of God. We find everything we need right in the book. And um, therefore, the sufficiency of Scripture um, declares to us that we do not need to look outside of it in order to find additional elements to introduce into worship. All right, any questions about that? Dave? Um, having worked overseas, I found that there were some Christians that said that they believed what you were are suggesting and teaching, but for them, the form was Western in the sense that they had it required everyone to sit in rows, and they required that they meet Sunday morning and Sunday evening and Wednesday. Those are traditions created by man and not given to us from God's Word. Yeah, I would disagree that meeting on Sunday is a tradition, not... No, Sunday morning and Sunday evening. Oh, I see. I see. No, not three and not... Not one. one. Right, okay. I understand what you're saying. All right. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, and this gets back to what we talked about previously, and that is God regulates the essence of worship, not the circumstances. So if we sat in a circle, that would be fine, Okay. Or if we sat on the floor, um, that would be fine. If we stand up to sing, if we sit down to sing, those are circumstances of worship, which the Word of God does not regulate. 
what it regulates is the essence that we must preach, we must pray, we must sing, um, we must read the scriptures, we must celebrate the Lord's Supper, we must do baptisms, we must give to the Lord's work. These are the things the Bible requires of us as to whether we pass a plate or have an offering box in the back like we do. That's not of the essence of worship. Okay, So what we try to do in establishing um, the circumstances is we try to have those things enhance the essence of worship as best as we understand them to be. But in another culture, it may be that the things that in Western culture enhance the essence of worship uh, would actually be to them um, a, uh, uh, something which would distract uh, from worship. We have men and women sitting together here all over the place. Uh, in other cultures, you may want the women on one side and the men on the other. Okay, that's, that's a circumstance of worship, not the essence of it. So, yeah, um, I think we have to always distinguish between those things and not get locked into circumstances and think they are part of the regulative principle of worship. Scott, you had a comment? Yeah, it, it actually stemmed from last week when, when you touched on the, on the traditions of men that was added to the worship of Jesus, was berating Pharisees and people about it. And I, I was looking up passages, two or three passages where there's people are berated for following the traditions of men and worship of God. And then further on in the New Testament, you can find commandments by the apostles saying, you must follow our tradition. And to me, the, the dichotomy there is, is that we'll first let me give a little con. That, I believe that's why the sign gifts followed the apostles, because they didn't have the New Testament as the word of God as their rule for, for the worship of God coming away from the the old covenant style worship, and they and, and these guys had to have the mark of apostleship of the authority of God when they said this is how we're going to worship God going forward. People needed to believe them, and that's why the sign gifts and all the power and authority was given these men so that they, people could say yes, these these are the men of God. They represent God. And what they say is authoritative, like Paul said. If a man thinks himself spiritual, let him acknowledge the right of God. And and so even though. I mean, you could look, if somebody wasn't, didn't want to look at it right, you could look at what the apostles are writing, and they say, you got to follow our traditions. They see, see, they're asking people to follow the, the traditions of men here. Why, what's wrong with it here? But they're not. They're asking them to follow the commands of God. Yeah. See, there's, the, the tradition in and of itself is not bad. It depends upon what tradition it is. There are traditions of God, and then there are traditions of men. They're both traditions. But one is a habit and pattern of activity that's based on the commandments of God, okay? And the other is the habit and pattern of behavior that's based on simply the teachings and ideas of men. So uh, I think you're right. What were Paul's traditions, okay, his pattern and example that he set for the New Testament church was actually the teachings of God. And, of course, as those teachings were inscripturated, um, what were, was Paul's habit and pattern actually was revealed to be God's mind and God's will regarding that, that issue. Um, you know, the whole issue of tradition tends to get a bad rap, and, and rightly so, from certain frames of reference. But there's another sense in which tradition um, is just the, the collective wisdom of the experience of people through the ages that doing it this way 
has been demonstrated to be uh, the best way uh, to carry out the commands of God in, um, in, in the life of the people. And I think, for example, of the marriage ceremony that we have. Uh, you know, uh, I, I promise uh, uh, for better or for worse, for richer and poor, in sickness and in health, uh, till death do us part, you know, to, to stay with you. And then also I will keep myself only unto you. Now, that's, that's a traditional form. And as, as, a, as a minister of the gospel and having performed many weddings through the years, I've had young people come to me and says, can't we write our own ceremony or our own vows? And my answer is, why? Um, and without going into the whole issue of marriage, I just want to say there's a reason why that tradition and that pattern has stood the test of time and is demonstrated among all of the so-called vows that people offer to best reflect scriptural teaching on the two obligations of marriage covenant, which is uh, cohabitation till death do you part and sexual faithfulness. I will keep myself only unto you. And so um, I, I don't think we should blindly follow tradition, but I think we need to be very careful about throwing tradition off because um, uh, traditions uh, are traditions for a reason. And we need to understand what those reasons are very well before we say that's bogus, we're not going to do it that way. Oftentimes, um, tradition is, is something that is rooted in the collective wisdom of the people of God through time. Now, I know that's really not what you were talking about, but it's kind of uh, something I think is, is important to understand in the whole concept of traditions. Uh, the traditions of the Pharisees, of course, resulted in the violation of the Word of God the traditions of the apostles were expressions of that word, which ultimately became inscripturated as the pattern of behavior for the people of God for all time. Go ahead. Right. We, we have the benefit of the New Testament scripture plus the benefit of 2,000 years of tried and true tradition at our disposal. Right. Now, of course, the Catholic Church takes you know, tradition and exalts it once again over the scripture, right? And they say that tradition has equal authority with the scripture. And we don't want to ever say that, all right? But uh, at the same time, we need to look carefully and ask ourselves, is this tradition based on the word of God? If it is, then we shouldn't just lightly overthrow it either. And this is a whole new subject. <laughs> I don't want to get to everybody all upset over it. But um, Tradition in and of itself is not evil. That's my point. And uh, the collective wisdom of our elders um, that have gone before us is something to be, uh, to be considered uh, and not lightly. All right, well, our time is gone. Let us pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you, Father, for your kindness in giving us a light to our feet and a lamp to our path so that uh, we can walk in the paths of righteousness and not deviate into those byways that would lead us into disobedience and destruction. Father, we pray that as our Savior instructed us, we would live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Help us, Father, to distinguish between the essence of worship and its circumstances so that we may be sure that we are regulated by your word in the content of what we do. And Father, we pray that as to their circumstances, that they might be so ordered 
as to best enhance and carry out the essence of what it is you require of us. Be pleased, Father, now to help us to worship you in the next hour. May it be a time, Father, of the going out of our hearts to you in humility and in thankfulness and in praise. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.